Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. All right, listeners, I've got a wonderful guest with me here today, Dr. Jonathan H. Kim. He is an associate professor of medicine and chief of sports cardiology in the Division of Cardiology and Orthopedics at Emory University. And additionally, he holds an adjunct professorship in the School of Applied Physiology at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Dr. Kim received his Bachelor of Science at Emory and was a Fulbright Scholar before attending Vanderbilt Medical School. He completed his residency in internal medicine pediatrics at Mass General Hospital and cardiology fellowship at Emory. Dr. Kim was chief fellow at Emory from 2013 to 2014. In addition to his clinical role, Dr. Kim conducts NIH-funded sports cardiology research at Emory. He is the team cardiologist for the Falcons, Braves, Hawks, Dream, Sports Medicine at Emory and Georgia Tech, and is a member of the NBA Cardiac Advisory Committee, NFL Cardiovascular Task Force, and the American College of Cardiology Sports and Exercise Council. He is also a consultant for Major League Baseball. He is the co-medical director for the AJC Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah, Dr. Kim, wow, we are excited to have you on this podcast. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, just to jump right into it, uh, I think most people know what a cardiologist is and how, like, how did you decide to separate and specialize in sports cardiology? And I guess I'm even thinking like, I didn't even necessarily like know that was its own field. Like it makes sense, but I didn't necessarily, I mean, just like I'm a, not just a dietitian, I'm a sports dietitian. So it totally makes sense and everything, but I've never had the privilege to work with a sports cardiologist. So can you tell us a little bit about your passion for this field and what led you down that path? Yeah, no, it gives an opportunity to really go give a plug for the field for sure. And, you know, medicine is such that as the overall field continues to evolve and grow, even in subspecialties like cardiology, for instance, there are numerous subspecialties. And there's always been subspecialties, right? There's different cardiologists that put stents into patients when they've had a heart attack, different cardiologists put pacemakers in or do procedures with the electrical system. But even within the overall broad depth of cardiology, we recognize that certain diff- certain patient populations require different arenas of expertise. And sports cardiology is really geared towards the cardiovascular health of patients who put a high premium on exercise. And so one important point to emphasize is that it's not just pro athletes, because some listeners may hear this and be like, well, it's a cool field, but I'm never going to be a pro athlete. I just like to exercise a lot. And the reality is, is the field of patients that I take care of are much more, from a percentage standpoint, 
regular people who just like to exercise, whether it's a recreational runner who engages in ultra endurance marathons, triathletes, et cetera, or somebody who goes to Orange Theory five days a week, but they just exercise a lot more than your common person out there who may barely exercise or only engages in, you know, like a half hour, five days a week. Um, these are people that like to spend you know, at least an hour a day. Their whole day revolves around this really important part of their life. And if things happen to them, one important aspect is, well, how is this going to affect my ability to exercise? And so those are the patients that we take care of. So it certainly includes your pro athletes, young athletes, master's athletes. I've got an 80, over 80 year old triathlete I take care of. I've got a couple up to that age that are still heavily invested and they've seen me for different reasons. So that's kind of the field overall. How I got into the field is pretty unique in the sense that the field of sports cardiology is not that old. You know, if you go back 40, 50 years ago, there were certainly athlete-related issues that just kind of fell into the guise of what a cardiologist could take care of. And then as we've learned more about what risk factors are out there, what conditions are out there. And, and again, the evolution of recognizing that takes more than just a general cardiologist to, to, you know, to know and be able to counsel, there became momentum about the growth of, of this field. And at the same time, there's a lot of neat research coming out, physiologic research about what the heart does, for instance, after a marathon. Obviously, there's always been a ton of interest about prevention of sudden cardiac death in athletes. That's a huge you know, not just amongst scientists and doctors, but just in the in the mainstream media, it always garners a lot of attention and appropriately so when there's a tragic case of a young athlete who dies. So right around 2006 or so, there was a really neat study that came out of what happens to the heart after running the Boston Marathon. And I trained up in Boston at the time. And so, you know, I knew the investigators that published this and uh, just really got into that. I was always interested in exercise physiology. I've been a runner myself my whole life. And, you know, it was kind of one of these perfect storms where as I, as I was trying to think about what I wanted to do with my, my own career, because I was a trainee at the time, I was a resident. Then all of a sudden I was like, this is what I need to do. I mean, I love this. This is so interesting from a research standpoint. I got involved in a lot of research at the time. And then trying to figure out a way to incorporate both a research interest with patients I wanted to take care of. So I was really lucky again, then as I went into fellowship, this is always what I wanted to do was to become a sports cardiologist. In fact, actually, when I got into it, I'm not sure we called it sports cardiology. It didn't necessarily have, uh, I mean, it's an obvious name for the field, but but I knew I wanted to be involved in, in you know, the truth of the matter is I was even thinking at the time, was it sports medicine I wanted to do or cardiology? Because my interest is all, always on the physiologic side and on the ECG and sudden cardiac death and all these really interesting topics. And I chose the sports cardiology route. So that, that's kind of how I got to where I am and, and really just an overall definition of the field. But but I would say, you know, just in terms of your question or when you said that, you know, you're a sports dietitian, you hadn't necessarily heard of this field. It's just so important. And, and I love doing these podcasts because it always reaches a certain different population of, of athlete that I've not interacted with before. And a lot of there's a lot of people who know about sports cardiology. Some people who don't start Googling when they, they have a, a complaint and they want to see, hey, I want to see somebody who sees athletes. And they'll typically find a way ultimately to me. But just understanding that that it is a field is an important kind of spreading the message out there. 
because I'm by no means I'm the only sports cardiologist. There's a lot of experts out there around the country and world. Right, for sure. And it's something that I'm very often talking to my clients about, like when they're seeing their doctors to find a sports physician or a sports orthopedic, because they're, you know, they're looking at different things. And so now it's nice to know even with cardiology, because it, again, not knowing much about this field, but there's a couple things coming to mind right away. The biggest one, which I'm sure is just a small portion of, you know, things that you've researched, but like that big debate of like, well, a low heart rate is healthy, but sometimes athletes have such a low heart rate, like that maybe that's starts to cross the line of unhealthy or could be for, yeah, other reasons that potentially across time and health and your non-sports related physician might just glance over and be like, low heart rate, that's healthy. But it's like, well, actually as an athlete, maybe this needs to be looked at a little bit deeper, right? So that's where your specialty can really differentiate what a healthy heart is in the athletic perspective. And, and many times it's actually, so to answer that question for listeners who might've heard that and wonder, hey, my heart rate's in the 40s, is that bad now? Because you know, I'm a marathon runner. The answer is, is that it's not bad. That is a very normal response for well-conditioned athletes, well-conditioned individuals, period. Young people who are healthy or not athletes have lower heart rates and Athletes, whether you're young or older, tend to have lower heart rates. And But that is one of the benefits of having a sports cardiologist, whereas if you're a uh, physician and you're just not sure because you have somebody in your practice that you see and their heart rate's 41 and you're used to seeing 70-year-olds, I, I don't mean to, to say being 70 is bad, so we'll say 60, 70, 80, whatever, whose heart rate's that low. And if they're not an athlete, yeah, that could be a concern. But if you're an athlete and you have that patient, you're not sure, then you send to the sports cardiologist before you order unnecessary tests. That's one of the really important things to note is that, yes, indeed, athletes are, quote unquote, different compared to people who are not highly engaged with exercise activities. And many things that can be, quote, unquote, abnormal for a non-athlete can be very normal for an athlete. And those are things that you even see on an EKG, which are, as doctors, we're trained in recognizing different patterns that are normal or abnormal. Well, athletes can have EKGs that look abnormal, but they're really not. And in fact, we have our own criteria that are published and have been well vetted that we use to know what's normal for an athlete. And so, yeah, I would encourage even practitioners who listen to this or just in general, it's important to know that a sports cardiology referrals out there to send when you're not sure, because the last thing you want to do as a physician is start ordering tests and putting unknown anxiety on pe people when they don't need it. So yes, that's an important aspect of what we do is, is guiding and ensuring that the right things are done and not too much is done when you don't need to do too much for that particular patient. Or mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we could touch back on you, I know it wasn't your research, but you mentioned a study in 2016 about what happens to the heart after Boston Marathon. I'm curious. Yeah, 2006, 2006. Oh, 2006. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, no, this is a, a well-known phenomenon. It's known as cardiac fatigue, uh, which is an apropos term. Uh, when you're engaged in a high-intensity, high-duration activity, such as a marathon and triathlon, the heart can get fatigued. And it's not bad, but acutely what happens after the heart when uh, studies have looked at, scientists have looked at what the heart looks like before and after a marathon Two of the chambers are really one of the chambers of the heart, the right ventricle, which is the chamber that sends blood to the lungs and then blood comes back to the left side of the heart, dilates a little bit more after a marathon. And the function of it, the squeeze of that ventricle is a little bit more sluggish. And 
And that's notable because the right ventricle is not as muscular as the left ventricle. It's really more a conduit getting blood to the lungs. And so it gets tired. In addition to that, uh, some specific what we call biomarkers, which are proteins that are within the the heart muscle itself, um, are released in the bloodstream and get picked up with blood tests. And the reason why this is important is, is some of these same blood tests in the in the appropriate setting, such as a patient who's sick in the ER who's having a heart attack, will be elevated. Some of those same markers can be elevated after a marathon. But we now know that this, the phenomenon of cardiac fatigue is a really a normal response to marathon training. And even back in 2006 or so, as this type physiology was defined, it was really felt more probably related to just by nature of engaging in this. And so it's an important thing. There's certainly, you know, if you do enough digging on Google and you're an individual, you can find enough things that will scare you for certain habits. And a lot of distance runners will come see me or triathletes and say, oh, my gosh, I, you know, so I was told or I read I shouldn't do this anymore. And those are just some of the, you know, unfortunate kind of themes out there that, that really aren't true. Is it true that some patients may not be healthy enough to run marathons based on things that have happened to them or conditions? Of course. I mean, by no means is it healthy for everybody. But as a blanket statement, you know, our marathons, triathlons bad for you is a really, I think, kind of dangerous thing to say because some people really, it's a passion and a big and important part of their lives. But the, again, this, what happens is cardiac fatigue, as we call it, is really kind of a normal cardiac response to, to marathon running. Yeah, I mean, that was just some of the science that came out around then that just really kind of tickled my fancy. And, and it's just one of the, the many neat things about studying athletes in the athletic heart. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, so it's one of those things where like, okay, we don't need to freak out just because you're having the same elevated blood biomarkers that would be in a heart attack. It doesn't mean that you're having a heart attack. That's This is a normal response. But just that that term cardiac fatigue, it's making me think of that you really post-marathon probably need to rest and not continue to overstress the heart. Is that fair advice for listeners or is that is that too generalized and it's individual for everybody no, I, I, I think for a lot of reasons though not not just not just the cardiovascular system but obviously the you know the orthopedic stress and the stress on the muscles that you put your body through absolutely you need to take you need to take some time and rest after a marathon anybody you know there's some superhumans out there i know that do these crazy things where they're running, you know, marathon a day. And some bodies are probably built to handle that, but most of us are not built to handle that. And so certainly my uh, encouragement is to, to rest afterwards. And it's also important to know, again, because I don't want listeners to think, oh my God, this is the same as a heart attack. It, it is not to the same level in terms of the, the overall rise in those markers. And it's a completely different physiology. So it is, it is definitely not, you're, it is not having a heart attack. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, definitely, you know, because I agree with you, it seems obvious to rest after a marathon, but sadly, I've run across far too many people that that don't. And, you know, we've all many of us have witnessed, you know, Shalane Flanagan's project Eclipse over the fall, which is pretty cool, where she did, you know, six marathons, not back to back days or anything, but was it within six weeks? right? Six marathons in six weeks. So like, that was really impressive, but she's a, a, you know, a very highly trained athlete, but it's not that uncommon for, for people like you and I to go after it and be like, I ran a marathon. Let me do another one in two weeks. And I just, you know, I think we, we can be very competitive, (laughs) you know, I don't, I, that's, I've never really resonated with the term weekend warrior. I'm some people do for sure, but I'm like, I don't know. I feel like we're, 
we get after it pretty hard sometimes as recreational athletes. Yeah. And as, as mentioned, there's always some high level individuals that are built to be able to do that. So certainly not me to tell Shailene Blanagan that she shouldn't have done that. She obviously was built to be able to do that and handle that. But the majority of folks who, who even those who are, are multiple marathon runners, my, my wife runs marathons. Uh, she's really into it, but she always takes time off after she finishes and allows the body to kind of recover, recuperate. It's really important. And again, I think a lot of that is also just from a training standpoint as well, because overtraining is definitely a real phenomenon as well that, you know, as a recreational athlete, you want to avoid. Yeah. You know, as you're mentioning, well, we see some, some things going on with the heart in our athletic population. That's just different from a normal population and, and it might not be bad per se, but I think most of us would assume that if we're athletic, then we wouldn't have heart concerns. Is that a false assumption? Could you debunk that? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, again, many of the adaptations that are normal, yes, are. And again, it's it's not a pathology to have EKG differences on on an ECG for an athlete, for instance, as, as mentioned. We have criteria to know what's normal for an athlete. Also, there's a phenomenon called the athlete's heart. So when there's an athlete that's highly trained over time, the heart adapts, it enlarges, it can get a little bit thicker, the muscle, and that is not a pathologic condition. It's a completely an adaptive phenomenon. We call it exercise-induced cardiac remodeling, and the colloquial term is the athlete's heart. Now, separate from that, and this is a really important point, just because, well, let me start with this. Exercise is medicine. That's a phrase we use all the time because it is. It doesn't matter what condition you have. You really should be exercising. But as I say, many patients, it's not a cure. It's not a quote unquote vaccine that protects you from everything. And so, yes, athletes can still harbor underlying conditions. Some conditions are genetically inherited. And these are when you think about young athletes and the tragic cases of sudden cardiac death is typically from an inherited condition that many times doesn't present with symptoms. And we're doing our best as we see young athletes, you know, during pre-participation evaluations, try to identify these conditions and try to counsel athletes through that. Sometimes even when they have these conditions, we now know that sometimes you can still be an athlete and compete. Sometimes though, there are conditions to where you shouldn't compete or at least have some treatment or some intervention before allowing ongoing competition. So, so there's the genetic aspect of heart disease. But then there's the acquired heart disease, and that is really apropos for the older athlete, the master's athlete. Again, hypertension or high blood pressure, coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis or even heart attacks or some some arrhythmias um, that are common in patients who are not healthy can still happen in athletes. And so, yes, it's important for athletes to know that they can still develop heart disease. Uh, they need to watch for certain warning signs or symptoms, but they also need to focus in on, on a good health. Uh, uh, you know, you don't want to stereotype all athletes uh, because you don't want to do that to anybody. But I will tell you that it is not uncommon for me to encounter athletes in my clinic when we go through our standard risk stratification of diet, family history, all these things. Many times, athletes who are highly trained and competitive tend to be a little bit more cavalier with what they eat and what they ingest, not just calorie-wise or what they're eating, but alcohol. We just talked about training habits. The And this is really, we may, I don't know if we're going to talk about COVID or not, but in general, pre-COVID, advice I always had is if you've got a bad cold, 
take a rest. If you've got the flu, you don't exercise until you get better. I can tell you, I have some athletes I take care of that think the best cure for a bad cold or the flu is to get out and do intervals for that day. So there are a lot of bad habits that can still be at play with a lot of master's athletes. And so it's important to kind of have that counseling with them from a diet standpoint. And then we may be talking about symptoms to watch for, but then, of course, listening to their body if something arises that's different and ensuring that they seek the appropriate medical attention to get evaluated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just I, I live in a different state than my father, but my father, just to share a little story with you, he's now 62 and he's been he's been an athlete his whole life, but running marathons since I think it was age 40 that he ran his first one. And I just spent some time with him. He just visited me a couple weeks ago and we were just having a small conversation as we always do about sports and running. And he, you know, he's all into tracking and monitoring his heart rate. And he's like, you know, he said something about, I know I get a little like crazy about it, tracking it all the time. But he, he said, you know, but this is my only life. This is my health. This is the one body I've been given and I want to take care of it. And he's recognizing like I'm getting older and, and he's actually, he is done with the marathon. He's still running, but about two years ago, decided marathoning was a little too much right now with some knee, knee issues. And so it's like, you know, you have to just, I, I think with those masters athletes really, and that heart health is, I'm really glad that you're bringing this to our attention and our listeners attention of just really, you know, I don't know, staying up with it, you know, and being mindful of all of your habits. Because yeah, especially I'm thinking about my father, who's, you know, his, he's aging, and as we all are, and it's like, okay, you know, he's not the same runner he was when he was 40. Things are different now. And there's other things to pay attention to. Yeah, it, it, it really is important. And, and I, I actually, I love the athletes that come to see me that come on their own volition, the ones that and most of these are because they have a family history and they saw their mom or dad have a big heart attack when they were younger and their parents were in their 40s, 50s. And they don't want to have it. They understand a lot of this is genetically inherited. Some just start really in tune with their bodies and they want to get checked out and, and make sure. And I think that that's what I always tell them, you know, like, yeah, that's really good that you did this. Even for those that are doing fine, you know, that we do this, the risk stratification, there's really nothing to tell them. But yeah, you know, you've got low risk. See me in a couple of years if you want just to kind of check in. And uh, but I always tell them, you know, pass the message on, you know, a lot of, that's the thing about masters athletes, whether you're a runner or a triathlete or a cyclist, it's a very close knit community in Atlanta. I can't tell you how many patients come see me because I take care of 10 of their buddies. Uh, mm -hmm. And so passing that message on, because I think that is an important message is for, you, you know, again, and you hear this sometimes, too. And it's always strikes me when I'll hear like, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life. You know, how do I have this now? You know, how do I have this blockage? I don't understand. And it's important that, of course, when you look at the big picture, that even patients, athletes, when you look at patients who have coronary artery disease or patients who have arrhythmias, people who exercise a lot have a lower burden of it. So the exercise still is, is medicine. It's still protective about how much this occurs in folks who are highly active versus those who are not. But it is still a message that you can still get these things happen. And whether it's genetics or other lifestyle habits that maybe weren't as good as the exercise habits were, I always talk about diet as an example, just to keep all that in mind and to make sure that you, you pay attention to that. And then, of course, if you do have a family history, yeah, maybe kind of seeing a preventive cardiologist or a sports cardiologist as well who kind of handles a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. For sure. So on on this podcast, and I should more clearly say in my business and in my work, 
I work with a lot of clients who end up under fueling and under nourishing their bodies. And well, they work with me to re-nourish and refuel their bodies and, and eat enough. So I do, I do see that very often of clients who are actually too restrictive with their eating, not fueling their body enough. And then that coupled with a high training load. Could you shed some light for some listeners about the risk that that poses on the heart? Because something that I always spread to them is, you know, just a reminder that your heart is a muscle. So just like you need to fuel your muscles, you need to be fueling your heart. And if you're under eating and under nourishing, that heart's not going to work properly. So it's like that imbalance of actually under fueling. But then I don't not necessarily overtraining, but overtraining compared to under fueling, for sure. What type of stressors would that place on one's heart if they're doing that? Yeah, you know, that, I think that's a really good question. It's probably one where there's not great science per se to kind of lean on and kind of say, well, this study showed that or that study showed that. But it does show, I think, the important relationship that, you know, the one thing I've learned in my career is that as a sports cardiologist, kind of developing relationships with sports psychologists and sports nutritionist dietitians is really important because all three of those aren't directly kind of overlapped with each other, but there's clear overlap in terms of athletes who develop symptoms that are more psychologically driven, but kind of border on the cardiac side. And so working with the sports psychologist, ensuring there's no cardiac pathology. And then on the dietitian side, thinking about performance, I mean, exercise intolerances is, is a probably the number one complaint that we get like in terms of an athlete who comes in with symptoms. And so trying to tease whenever it's true cardiac pathology versus a nutrition issue, you know, what they're fueling with. And, you know, my job is to kind of get them, get them through the workup of ensuring that nothing's wrong with their heart and then kind of feeding them into the appropriate resources whenever we think it may be a nutrition issue and what they're fueling with, et cetera, or a training issue and, um, you know, overtraining or things such as that. So you know, it's a challenge. Uh, I, I think that sim- athletes that present with different symptoms or, or well, let me start over. I, I think it is, uh, you know, question is always, well, what are some things that athletes should watch for that could be indicative that something's going on with their heart? That's a good question. <laughs> and exercise intolerance is, is one, you know, athletes are so highly conditioned that they don't necessarily complain of crushing chest pain when they're walking up the stairs. It may be, and I've certainly had these in my experience, an athlete that is two minutes or a minute and a half slower. And they saw two other cardiologists who kicked them out of their clinic because they're like, you're running marathons, nothing's wrong with you. And then they come see me and, you know, many times exercise intolerance is something like overtraining or something more benign or a, or a nutrition issue. We get them plugged into the right sports specialist. But sometimes you will pick up true cardiac pathology. And so ensuring that exertional symptoms, clearly chest pains, tightness, exercise intolerance, which is really kind of excessive shortness of breath during exercise. Those are things are, are feeling lightheaded, dizzy passing out. I mean, during exertion, those are all the symptoms that warrant kind of you as an athlete to come see me as a sports cardiologist. Hey guys, I'm going to interrupt you for just a moment because I want to let you know about an amazing discount for an awesome company that I partner with, Inside Tracker. In fact, in this episode, we talk about blood biomarkers, which is part of what Inside Tracker does and why I want to tell you about them. They help you optimize your body using science and technology to deliver ultra-personalized guidance. They use cutting-edge algorithmic engines to analyze your blood, 
DNA, lifestyle, and workout habits, and it's all available to you right now. You can hop online and order your plan and use the code RISEUPNUTRITION, one word, all capital letters, for a whopping 25% off. Seriously, that is a good savings, 25% off. And I hope you know that I don't advertise for too many products on this podcast because I really value personalized and individualized nutrition and care. But that's exactly why I really value Inside Tracker. It helps put health into your own hands and you do get individualized results. It's based on your blood work. I use Inside Tracker myself. I use it on many of my clients. And if you use the code RISEUPNUTRITION for your Inside Tracker order, regardless of being a personal client or not, then I'm always happy to consult with you via email if you need more nutrition support. So head to InsideTracker.com to learn more. Use the code RISEUPNUTRITION. More details in the show notes. Get that 25% off amazing discount. And let's get back to the episode and this awesome conversation. And just to rewind for a second and have you define exercise intolerance, it, so- it sounds obvious, but so that's when you're normally exercising and then suddenly you're becoming, you know, intolerant to it of I'm having the shortness of breath. My times have way slowed down, even though I can't think of like what else has really changed. Suddenly I'm, I'm not tolerating what I used to be able to do. Is that correct definition? Right. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a very nonspecific and, you know, feeling excessively short of breath is one way to describe it. Another way is I just can't do what I used to do. I always tell athletes that, you know, exercise intolerance is, is nothing you're going to notice from Monday to Tuesday, but over a span of a couple months, it's pretty obvious. You know, it's like, you know what? I have my routines now over the last two to three months are just not what they were, you know? Four to five months ago, something has changed, and and as mentioned, that's a challenging one because when they come see me, there's not one diagnosis that it could be. It's actually numerous, but it also can range from things that yes, you have a cardiac diagnosis versus no, and it's something else <laughs> um, which is non cardiac related, and so we work through that. But that is the way to think of exercise intolerance, and that, that's why I. And thank you for that clarification, because I think that's where I was getting at with the nutrition piece, too, is I do see a lot of people who are becoming intolerant to their exercise or they are seeing sudden changes in their heart rate and they're not seeing their training progress. And it actually does come down to their nutrition. So it's one of those things like you mentioned of get work with a sports cardiologist, rule out cardiac issues. And then if it's not like get with the other specialists, is it a psychology thing? Is it a nutrition thing? And that's where I think my specialty, I see that a lot of we're seeing a lack of training response or heart rates that are, you know, shooting way up higher than they should be for what they're trained at. And it's because of a chronic under fueling or a chronic under recovery with their nutrition. That's what I see. That's right. Yeah. It, it's one of the numerous bins and baskets. Absolutely. And so, um, it is a part of the overall comprehensive care of the athlete. You know, there's some sports cardiology centers out there that have that kind of plugged in within their center. And those are certainly not the most common, but I think in my program as well, I don't have a sports psychologist in my clinic at Emory, but thankfully in the city of Atlanta, I know different nutrition, uh, dietitians, nutritionists, and psychologists that work heavily with athletes that we can plug them into whenever we've got to that stage and it's beyond um, a cardiac diagnosis, but there's a clear issue limiting that athlete that falls in those other bins. Absolutely. 
So you started to say, Dr. Kim, like a, a checklist of what are some symptoms to watch out for? And I'm just not sure if if you fully finish that list or if I can ask you again. So you mentioned like shortness of breath, lightheadedness, exercise intolerance, anything else you might add to that list? Certainly chest pains, chest tightness. And usually it's a pressure sensation of um, somebody pushing on the chest or, you know, sitting on the chest even. Sharp pain for sure, but usually it's that pressure sensation that comes on with exertion, goes away with rest. For athletes, an important concept is that's something important to be aware of is this entity called warm-up angina, which is uh, an athlete who feels chest tightness when they warm up. And then once they get going, they feel fine. And then they're able to push themselves hard so they think nothing of it. That's actually a classic <laughs> potentially harbinger of maybe atherosclerosis or blockages. So mm. yeah, for runners hearing that um, and they're listening to this and that's happening to them, I would definitely get that checked out. That's not a reassuring sign for it to go away once you're warmed up. Obviously passing out anytime you pass out during exercise, particularly if it's during exertion versus post-exertion. Not that you wouldn't get it assessed even if it's post-exertion, but exertional lightheadedness or passing out is, is a big red flag. So I think the rule of thumb is that any kind of cardiac, perceived cardiac complaint when you're actually exercising is a um, doesn't automatically diagnose you with a cardiac condition, but that's got to be worked up. So if I see an athlete and they have various complaints, all oh, my heart flutters a little bit whenever I'm, you know, only when I'm at home watching TV at night, a couple skip beats here or there. Obviously, we'll go through an evaluation, but I'm already in my mind much more reassured versus if, you know, when I'm exercising and all of a sudden my heart takes off like a rocket and, uh, you know, my heart rate is 170. That's my, you know, near my peak heart rate and all of a sudden it's 210 and it's and I feel it. That is indicative of an arrhythmia in that case. So there's something going on. So the exertional symptoms are the ones that really should trigger holding off and getting getting checked out. I love that. Thank you for that clarification in that checklist. I think that'll be useful for people for sure. So you mentioned earlier, you were like, I don't know if we'll talk about COVID. So can we? <laughs> of course, have to. Everybody, it's, in, it's still on everybody's mind, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And it definitely, I mean, obviously, when you get COVID, you should be taking time off, isolating, resting, but it's definitely, you know, affecting people's breathing, therefore heart rate. And I know for me, I had COVID in February of 2021. And it. I did when I got back into exercise about four to six weeks later, I it was the shortness of breath stayed with me for quite some time. So yeah, I don't know just, you know, what you have to share what information I have a couple clients who have had COVID and they they're similarly like, even after taking time off, they're still struggling with shortness of breath. What are some some information that you can share with us about COVID and how it affects our breathing and our heart and things like that? Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to get into. First, I'll say that we have certain over the last two years from a ACC, which is the American College of Cardiology, from our side, trying to provide guidance for the competitive athlete and return to competitive training. We've got through different iterations of recommendations, which were way too conservative in the beginning because there was a lot to be scared of as it relates to the heart versus following the data, following the evidence about how much cardiac involvement after COVID we were actually really seeing athletes, which is actually a very small amount. And we actually just published our most recent and probably hopefully final guidelines about what to do for a return to competitive training. Now, before everybody starts looking these up, um, which are available, I do think it's important to note, though, that I've, most patients, most individuals, even high-level recreational exercisers, 
don't need to see a cardiologist before they get back to exercise training. I think the general rules of thumb are number one, when you have COVID, even if it's mild COVID, I would say this for anything though. So it's not like I'm too COVID phobic here. Even if you've got a bad cold, rest, don't exercise through a viral infection. It's really not in your best interest, even if that's something that you've gotten away with your whole life. Particularly for COVID though, take time off, wait till you get better. If you're one of these lucky people that have no symptoms, I do think the recommendations that we have for competitive athletes are still hold true. Just give yourself a few days to make sure you don't get symptoms. We say three days in our document here. That's a consensus recommendation. So it's not evidence-based. It's an opinion from experts. Okay. Uh, but I think in general, that's enough days to kind of lay low. And then if you've not developed symptoms three days after a positive test, you can probably start to do some exercise. Now you're self-isolating, of course, still. That's within the five-day CDC window. But you could get on the treadmill at home or do some stuff um, where you're self-isolating, protecting yourself. If you do have symptoms, wait till they get better. Once they get better, then the advice is just take it slow. Ensure that you're not developing what we call cardiopulmonary symptoms, which are chest tightness, excessive shortness of breath, any cardiac related symptom. If you do, as you put, as you kind of try to build the exercise regimen, that may be, a, that is probably something that you want to bring it up with your doctor because whether it's ongoing manifestations of COVID, because we know those symptoms can last a while. The definition of long haul are symptoms that last more than a month. So you don't call it long COVID until it's been really a long period of time at more than a month. But we know that in general, just whether it's long haul or just residual COVID that takes a long time to get better, that's probably most likely what this is. But if you do have cardiopulmonary symptoms, ensuring that there's been no cardiac involvement, inflammation within the heart related to the virus, that's an, and you're a high-end exerciser, a marathon runner, et cetera, that's when you want to reach out to your doctor. Most healthy people, though, who get the virus, certainly we've seen as competitive athletes, tend to have more milder forms of the virus, thankfully. Obviously, this is more certainly advice to get vaccinated, get boosted, so you don't have to deal with these eight you know, deal with more severe COVID or the concern of that, but even have hopefully a, a, a milder form of it to where you're not out of exercise for a while. You should do that for sure. But if you, whether you're vaccinated or not, and you have COVID and you're having these ongoing cardiopulmonary symptoms that are present when you're exercising, that's the time that you want to get evaluated um, for sure. And it's probably most people are anyway. And, but the take-home point, though, is, is just because you had COVID, even if you had those symptoms when you had COVID, let's say you had chest tightness when you had COVID, I don't think you need to see cardiologists once those symptoms get better. You could probably, on your own, gradually build up exercise and kind of see, make sure that you tolerate the slow ramp up, and hopefully it doesn't come back and you're back to where you were and there's no further testing that needs to happen. Yes, that slow ramp up is important, and I think you've stressed that multiple times with COVID or any other you know, sickness that's taking you out for a while. Absolutely. Yes. Really important advice. So, you know, again, that, that's always been kind of the stereotype for Masters Athletes I mentioned, which is, and again, I will admit, uh, because I don't want to lie that, because uh, I told you I've been a runner most of my life, but that's a habit I used to do as well. And it's a bad habit, like just any viral infection, you know, rest. <laughs> you don't have to push through it. You'll be fine. You take a few days off. You're not going to lose all your conditioning. Let your body recover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think a lot of people resonate with you there of pushing it when we shouldn't have. And so it's just something that needs to be repeated over and over and over again. 
<laughs> so thank you for that. Interesting. So I have just kind of a, a few final questions for you as we wrap up this episode. One of them is just that, you know, as part of your, you know, many jobs and things that you do as a sports cardiologist, one race that you've been involved in is, I believe it's the world's biggest 10K race. That's right. Correct. The, um, in Georgia, uh, what is it? The AJC Peachtree Road Race. And you've been like on the the board of, you know, you can just say kind of explain. Co-medical it director. Okay, co-medical director. Right. So we have, uh, you know, um, the Peachtree Road Race is the world's largest 10K. So there's 60,000 runners uh, per year. We're excited this That's year crazy. because last year, believe it or not, uh, we, ha- we held it, but we split it over two days. So I, I really tip my hat to the executive race director, Rich Kana. He's a former Olympian, um, so I want to give him a shout out, but he's always been very responsible. And of course, the race was canceled in 2020. We did it over two days last year, which was brutal on the, the medical folks because it's two days of being out there, but but it was the right thing to do. So this is the first year that we're going to have a real one-day peace tree, probably close to our old numbers, and we're certainly excited about that. But it's the same size as a large marathon. So anytime you have kind of thinking about the medical coverage, it's 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 a bunch of people on the emergency medical side, other aspects. And I'm lucky enough to be one of those uh, people involved. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that, what goes into that from a medical standpoint, because it's, it's a lot of people to care for and such a big event. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we're all participating in such a healthy activity and yet things sadly go wrong. So having, you know, an extensive medical care team available and present is so important at road races. Absolutely. And, and of course, for our road race, because it is July 4th, the issue we deal with is heat exhaustion. Uh, that, that is the primary medical complaint. And every summer, it's all about counseling runners down here about making sure you're trained for the race. Don't just roll out of bed and decide you're going to run in 90 degree weather, 100% humidity. Make sure that you're acclimated and then be smart when you run all the tips about hydration listening to your body for signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion. That, that, that's probably the most important medical message that, that we promote for this specific race. Yeah. Do you still see at, at road races like that? I feel like this was a much bigger issue probably 15, 20 years ago, but with the overhydration and hyponatremia with low sodium, do, are you still seeing that during summer races? You know, for us, no, uh, not for this race. Okay. I think it probably most of that is due to just the shorter duration, and that's really more an issue for your marathon events. It's interesting, though. So we actually published a study looking at cardiac arrests in marathon cases. Uh, we looked at 10 years of this, and we published this in 2012, looking at etiology and incidents. And uh, again, for anybody who's concerned, I can tell you right up, the conclusion was that the incidents of cardiac arrest during marathons are actually pretty darn low, reassuringly safe, and all the emergency action planning that uh, are available for these road races really do an amazing job of saving lives when, unfortunately, things can still go awry. But one of the neat things that was a part of that was, you know, hyponatremia was not actually one of the primary problems that we observed in terms of overall etiology. Not to say that it isn't an issue, because I'm not saying that, but Maybe to your point, is it still a problem? I think probably it is clearly going to be something that you worry about for those races. And many times when you have runners who finish and who have altered mental status or having nonspecific complaints, a lot of times they do have point of care tests where they could check a quick sodium because that's on the differential of, of many things that can cause kind of an altered runner at completing a, a race like that. Uh, but there's other things to consider as well, in addition to iPhone and Heat exhaustion. 
hypothermia is another big one. So, you know, Boston, of course, in April, you never know what weather you're going to get. Uh, but if you get a cool day in Boston, my colleagues in the medical tents, the marathon, are surely that'll probably be the bigger issue that they deal with throughout the day are hypothermic runners. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You can overheat and you can, your core body temperature can become too, too low as well. It's lots of crazy things that happen on an event like that. Yeah. And the, the reason I asked about the hyponatremia is because I, this is not an evidence-based statement. This is just my observation that I feel like 20 years ago, there was such a focus on hydrate, 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 that then we started to see people that were, you know, overhydrating. And then we brought awareness to that too, of like, well, actually, you don't want to overhydrate and you need to make sure you're getting your electrolytes. So I feel like we've done a good job at the education standpoint of pushing the sodium and electrolytes as well. And so I, this is just an observation that I feel like people are getting that now instead of just chugging too much water. 100% agree. 100% agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Dr. Kim, thank you so much. This has been really insightful. Definitely, I think, has probably helped our listeners just think about some other things when it comes to their heart health and as it relates to them being an athlete and has definitely encouraged us to get help or seek a consult with a sports cardiologist if we're having any of the symptoms and things that you kind of mentioned might be some red flags. Just get it checked out. I'd love to finish this podcast with some fun questions. You ready? Oh, sure. Let's do it. Dr. Kim, if there is one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would that be? Oh, boy. I'd have to say, and, and I, you know, I'm Korean, uh, so I like Korean food. I, I don't eat Korean food every single day, but uh, as I've gotten older, I don't know if it's just a part of getting older and having it in your genes, but, but a good Korean barbecue. That that may that's on my that that's at least on my mind right now. So I'll, I'll go with that. But ask me tomorrow, maybe I'll say something different. <laughs> or you can just try it out. Eat Korean barbecue every single day for the next few days and <laughs> see if you get sick of it. <laughs> Probably not good for my cholesterol. So I have to. I can't do that. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, awesome. What is your favorite sport to participate in yourself? Well, two things. Well, one, if I if I could dream, it would obviously be to play professional basketball and then. You know, uh, my, my calling to be a professional football player, my, my father took that away as a kid. He didn't allow me to play. But one can still dream on those. In terms of what I actually do, I love, still love to run and I love to golf. Amazing. And how about as a spectator then? What's your favorite sports to watch? Is it perhaps football since you love that one so much? <laughs> yeah, you hit it. So certainly fo- football and basketball. So, you you know, when you go from the NFL season to March Madness, uh, I actually like watching pro. Well, I just, I mean, I'm a sports cardiologist. So yeah. there's not a sports cardiologist that doesn't love watching sports. So there's very few sports I don't like. But this is a great stretch with March Madness and then the Masters. Of course, I'm in Georgia. And so growing up in the Southeast myself, is it's just a fun, fun time of year. Yeah. For spectating and watching sports. That's great. And then since this is the female athlete nutrition podcast, is there a female athlete out there that you want to give a shout out to or somebody that you find inspiring or to be a role model? Oh boy, there's a ton. So I, I, you know, I, I love the U S women's soccer team, just everything that they have. I mean, their achievements, number one. So big Alex Morgan fan for sure. Yeah. Uh, Megan Rapinoe. I mean, just huge fans, but also, you know, just the stance they've taken a lot of uh, important issues out there that are very important just overall, but also for women athletes out there. And I'm a big Sue Bird fan as well. So I know uh, that's uh, Megan Rapinoe's partner. I'm a big fan of hers. Love watching her play college ball. When I was, 
actually probably relatively close around the same age. So I remember watching her at UConn. So I, I would put those up there. And, uh, you know, again, you just keep me going. I mean, I love watching yeah. the Williams sisters, of course, over the years, but I'll stop there. All the greatest, <laughs> for there sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for sharing more about your career field and educating our listeners. And we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce, fit and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more, or know you have Red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash Red S and download the Red S recovery race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus, while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to a private Facebook community, Female Athlete Nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S that's backslash R E D S and you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer become fierce, fit and fueled links in the show notes, and I'll see you next time.